following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Oh, Easter Sunday. I got to tell you, I'm always nervous on Easter Sunday. I'm also nervous on Christmas and Christmas Eve. These are the two big days if you're a follower of Jesus. The birth of Jesus where God becomes flesh and comes to earth. And then the resurrection of Jesus, the thing that seals that God has the power to forgive sins like he claimed that he did through the death of Jesus. And it's the kind of week where I have dreams throughout the week about what could go wrong on a Sunday. Last night, I dreamed that I got here and I didn't have a shirt on. Luckily, I had pants on at least. But I'm like, and I'm standing there talking. I believe it was the worship team. And I'm like, why did I not wear a shirt? Like... Who dressed me? I don't understand. So I looked down, and it turns out I did have a shirt on. It was just so thin and cottony that it was like I didn't have a shirt on. I'm like, oh, thank God I have a shirt on for Easter Sunday. And my wife calls me. She's like, did you mean to leave your notes at home? No, and it's five minutes away from start. That's what my dreams are like the whole week before Easter. But it reminds me about something. And that is, as a follower of Jesus, Easter is a big deal. It's this reminder that we, we serve this amazing God and we believe this incredible thing. So there's this tradition in the church on Easter Sunday where someone will say the Lord is risen and everyone else responds, he is risen indeed. Let's do that formally this morning. The Lord is risen. He is risen okay, so do we hear the claim that we're making when we say this? We are making a claim that God became one of us became a human. And then he lived with us. And he went through what it was like to be human. And then he dies. And we'll get into more of that later. And then he brings himself back to life. Who does that? Like if, you've, if you're like me and you've grown up in the church, you've done this every year. And you hear sermons throughout the year. And we can lose sight of this crazy thing that we're saying. We're saying something that we all know is counterintuitive to what we know to be true about life. A dead person brought themselves back to life. And we've got some other stories like where Jesus brought dead people back to life, but he's the outside agent. He's doing something there, but the dead person themselves brought themselves back to life. That's a crazy claim. And it was a crazy claim 2,000 years ago. Let's not kid ourselves. People who lived at Jesus' time weren't stupid. They knew what it meant for people to be dead. They record that when they pierced Jesus' side, blood and water flowed. Doctors will tell you, yep, um, he's dead. That's a sign of it. And they knew he was dead. And the Romans were really, really good at crucifixion. And they knew he was dead. In fact, they knew it so much it didn't bother to break his legs because he didn't have to suffocate because he was already dead. And then they take him down from the cross and they go to bury him and his followers embalm him. It's really the Jewish version of embalming. They kind of borrowed it from the Egyptians, except they didn't carve out people's insides. But they they would wrap them. In some ways, Jesus is born in swaddling clothes. He ends his earthly life in swaddling clothes. He was given myrrh as a gift when he was a baby. And now myrrh is one of the spices, one of the 75 pounds of spices they put on Jesus after he dies. Why do they do this? Because, like his friend Lazarus, in four days, he will stink. And in four days, his followers plan to come back and get him and move him out of kind of this holding area into the tomb, into a deeper part of the tomb. And so likely because this was a rushed 
um, burial, they probably didn't soak all the, the linens and everything. They probably just piled it on top of him. 75 pounds worth of all kinds of spices. So yeah, he was dead. And you'd think the gospel writers might not want to show how thoroughly all of Jesus' followers thought he was dead. Like they could have worked some language in there like, uh, he was dead and they were a little confused about it. They didn't even bother to embalm him because they figured he'd made this promise. Uh, I'm coming back in three days. You're like, he's coming back in three days. He's, we're going to have to worry about him stinking. So we just kind of set him in there. Not what his followers did. They embalm him. They believed he was dead. And scripture records this of his followers. They had given up hope. They were in despair. And then he reveals himself on that third day. So that he did not see corruption, as both Psalm and Acts point out. He reveals himself. And even when he does that, the people aren't automatically buying it because they know what happens to dead people. They know that dead people do not bring themselves back to life. So we read in the scriptures, uh, when the women come back and report to the disciples what the angel had told them, they just didn't believe it. A couple of them run to the tomb, Peter and John, and Peter looks in. And the word in the Bible for what Peter did was like he saw where Jesus was. And this word is kind of where we get the word hypothesis. That he looked and he thought about it and he came up with these different ideas. What could be the explanation? And it just says he saw it, but it doesn't say that he believed. Peter just saw. And then he processed, like, how can this be possible? And then Jesus appears to a couple guys on the road to Emmaus, and they tell the disciples, and the disciples still don't believe these guys. When Jesus does appear the first time, they're convinced he's a ghost. And then later, he has another meeting with all of them where he talks to them for a while, and they're still not quite sure if it's him. And, and we might look at this and go, guys, come on, how much more evidence do you need? But they weren't fools. They knew that dead people did not bring themselves back to life. They didn't know what to do with this. It took them some time. This was an era in Jewish history where these false messiahs were always cropping up. They were trying to knock off Rome. They were trying to cleanse the temple. This group of people was used to seeing these leaders rise up who said, We will save you from the Romans. We will cleanse the temple once again. And then the Romans would kill them. They would disappear. That's, that's the pattern that they were used to. This is something new. And yet, as the Bible records and as history records, they became convinced that this is indeed what happened. So the early Christians, they claimed that Jesus was God in the flesh. This made no sense to the Greeks and Romans, there was no way a god would subject themselves to a lowly human form. And then when they claimed you resurrect, well, the, the Jews didn't believe that there would be any kind of individual resurrection. They thought at the end of time, maybe everybody comes back. Not that an individual would. They didn't appoint a successor. I mentioned some of these last week. Their Messiah, had he stayed dead, they would have appointed someone else to carry on his mission. They don't appoint a successor like every other Messiah had at that time. The early Christians said they actually had more hope now, not less hope. They claimed that now people were the temple of God. You didn't have to go to a building anymore. We were the temple of God. The church, this community of God's people, these are the places where God dwells. They changed their view of God into a triune one. 
Now God was three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This was a brand new development. But what do you do when somebody brings themselves back from the dead to establish their deity? Okay, we we have not fully understood in the past what God was like. Excuse me. The triune God emerges. And they worship Jesus at a time when to the Romans, if you worshiped a person, it was treasonous. Why? Because Caesar was God. Or like many of the leaders at the time said, they were just the son of God. They called themselves that. Uh, They didn't want to get assassinated for being too uppity. So they would just say, oh, my dad's God. I'm the son of God. Uh, In the 40s, not long after Jesus died, there was one year where there was four different Romans claiming to be the son of God. Uh, It it almost divided or almost um, crushed Rome at that time just because it split them so much. But here's someone else showing up and saying, no, I'm the son of God. It is my father who is God. And so to the Romans, this was treasonous. You're starting a new movement. And to the Jews, uh, this is just blasphemy. People can't claim to be God. The early Christians changed their worship to the first day of the week, that is Sunday, instead of insisting it would be the last day of the week, which is Saturday. Why? Because the first day of the week had now become a holy day. That was the day that Jesus rose. They accepted and even embraced martyrdom. When the reality was, had they not followed Jesus, simply remained part of the Jewish community... Barring the times that these rebellions rose up and the Russians, or the the Russians, the Romans. (laughs) Do we edit our live stream? The Romans got really mad. I would kill them. That's it. It's a day. Generally, there was, you didn't typically give your life to the Romans if you were a Jew. They might oppress you, but generally speaking, you could live a fairly um, safe life as a Jewish person at that time. But to become a Christian, now you were this rebellious sect that was worshiping this son of God who was vying for power in Rome, apparently, and so now your life was on the line, and they accept this, and history would record that in the early church, the martyrs suffered horrible deaths. Horrible deaths because they believed Jesus had died and rose from the dead. Changed everything. But there's something else that's standing out to me this year. And it's going to maybe seem like a side note to this, and it probably is, but we're going to veer back into the mainstream after a bit. So I was reading an account this year, uh, John's account of running to the tomb. And maybe one reason this paragraph sticks out to me is I'm realizing more and more that the Bible is just rich. There's so much to discover in it. You get the rest of your life. Those of you who have been followers of God most of your life, are you with me? The Bible, you just peel back layers and you find more and more stuff there. It's pretty amazing. But I also think it's because I'm getting to know myself better. And I'll explain what I mean by that as as we go through this story. So I'm reading now from Book of John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. 
So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, and he saw and believed. Now, John is writing this. John is the disciple that Jesus loved. John is the other disciple in this account. Like, he's too modest to tell you who he is. It's just Peter and this this other disciple. But John does some other things in this paragraph that are interesting to me. He goes out of his way to note that Jesus loves him in particular. Uh, uh, The one that Jesus loved, who shall not be named. (laughs) He mentions that he won the foot race, not once, but twice. The other disciple outran Peter, and then later Peter, who was behind him. And And then Peter just... He studies, he saw what was there. And I mentioned earlier, he kind of studied and hypothesized, but not John. John saw and John believed. Props to John for not just seeing, but believing. And it's interesting when you read Peter's account. So the Gospel of Mark was probably written by John Mark who traveled with Peter for a long time. And early church historians record that the people begged Mark to make a record of everything that Peter was saying. So the odds are pretty good that the Gospel of Mark, written by Mark after listening to Peter over and over, tell these stories about what happened. And it's interesting, if you go to the book of Mark, the last thing Mark writes in the tomb narrative is that the women leave after talking to the angel and they go back and tell the disciples. End of that portion of the story. Peter doesn't talk about what he did or what happened in that little bit. Though he does note this, that the ladies went back to tell the disciples and Peter. Just to make sure that you know he was singled out. All right, so here's the thing that stands out to me about this. And I recognize this is commentary on Scripture. I think it would be neat if this was an example of early first century humor. Like maybe John and Peter had this ongoing kind of digging at each other. And John's gospel is the last gospel that's written chronologically. And John's like, uh, Peter, watch this. And the disciple who was faster than Peter ran to the tomb. I don't know. Maybe this was early dad jokes or something. But I'm not inclined to think that. Just because of the record of the disciples. As you read in the course of the biblical accounts, the disciples are, they're remarkably shallow and self-centered and egotistical people. And we'll actually unpack that a little bit more in a minute. If, if I am to read this in the context of everything else we know about them, it doesn't strike me as unusual that John's like, just want everybody to know I'm faster than Peter. Jesus rose, but I got there first. It's even funny when you read about how, how Peter and John were called to follow Jesus. And this is in the Gospel of Mark, so this would be Peter's account. Um, Peter notes that when Jesus called uh, Peter, he dropped his nets and immediately followed Jesus. Like, it was his boat, his nets, he was out of there the minute Jesus called. 
And then Jesus goes and calls John, and John walked away from his dad and all of his helper's boat. Peter owned his own boat. He left a lot more. John, he was working for his dad. Like, you get these weird kind of tensions going on sometimes in the narratives. You're like, okay, these are people writing this. I mean, they're inspired people. But it's it's leaking out. So I'm amazed that Jesus died for the most appalling acts of evil I can think of. I'm amazed that Jesus died so that people who commit genocide can be saved. I'm amazed that people died, or that Jesus died, so that people who plant bombs in churches on Easter Sunday morning can be saved. Sometimes people use the phrase, the scandalous nature of the gospel. Like, we understand why victims need saving, but perpetrators, seriously? We want them saved too, and God says, why, yes, in fact. The ones we call monsters, or the ones we call animals, God sent his son to save them, to redeem them, which does not mean they don't pay a penalty in this life for the things they have done. It means that God says, through Jesus, I will take that penalty on myself. So you don't have to suffer eternally for that. I offer you forgiveness. I offer you healing. I offer you hope. You who slaughtered people on a Sunday morning with a bomb. They're not beyond the reach of love and grace of Jesus. But when I think of it only that way, it's easy for me to let myself off the hook because I've not set a bomb. I've not made the news. I've not been arrested. I'm not a guy who's known as a monster or an animal. So it's easy for us to kind of go, well, of course it costs a crucifixion for that kind of person because they're horrible people, they're full of evil, and they're full of sin. But I love that Jesus died so people like John could live. John, who's, who's petty, who's shallow, who's proud. In other words, he's just one of those ordinary people who's carrying around a broken heart and a dark mind. Because that's all of us now. Now it's not somewhere far away doing something we can all comfortably point fingers at. And the gospel is very comfortable. The gospel accounts are very comfortable recording how the people around Jesus were in some ways ordinary people. But you see leaking through the cracks the seeds of evil. And that even if those acts that you see in them are not right in that moment, as disastrous as a lot of these other marquee sins, we see that there is something nestled inside of them that depending on how it's nurtured, It's coming out sideways. Like, this is not going to go well. So, we see, for example, the disciples, like I mentioned, they're just a mess. They are likely rejects from rabbinical schools. Typically, men at that time would have gone to a rabbi and said, can I be a disciple of yours? And a rabbi would go, well, if you're good enough, sure. Uh, None of these guys were disciples of rabbis, which was why it was huge for Jesus, the rabbi, to go to them and say, I'd like you. He went to the rejects. They're clearly not the cream of the Jewish crop. Like I said, they're jealous, they're petty, they're angry, they're unfocused. They're like, 
who gets to sit at your right hand, Jesus? Which one of us is the best? And they have this big argument. And they're walking down the road, and someone doesn't treat Jesus nice. And they're like, can we call fire down on them? And Jesus rebukes them. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, his brother James, they struggled with knowing whether or not Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus calls Peter Satan one time. Like, Peter rebukes Jesus. That's recorded in Mark, by the way. Mark probably heard Peter tell this story over and over again. Peter had the... Peter rebuked Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, Satan, get behind me. The Jews in Jerusalem were terribly disappointed in Jesus. So when Jesus enters Jerusalem waving palm, the people are waving palm branches... Those weren't just happy-go-lucky, like, hey, here's greenery for you. This was probably provided to them by the zealots who were thinking that Jesus was the Messiah who was going to bring a sword and was going to finally slaughter the Romans. And next thing you know, give it a week or two, and the people who are waving palm branches are now sharpening swords because Jesus was not this warrior Messiah that they expected. The professionally religious people, the Pharisees, Jesus once said of them, they're more busy creating disciples of hell than they are disciples of heaven. Can you imagine someone saying that today to religious leaders in the American church? Uh, I know what you think you're doing, but you're actually making disciples of hell. Paul, who eventually becomes the one who takes the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles, Soon after Jesus dies, Paul's about to start killing Christians, the early followers of Jesus. It sure seems like tax collectors and prostitutes and idol-worshipping Samaritans had a much better handle on who Jesus was than all the cleaned-up people around him. Jesus goes to the garden. His best friends can't stay awake. Multiple times, it's Jesus like, can you just hang with me? No. Well, I mean, they said yes, and they all went to sleep. He gets arrested. They all run away. They deny him. These are the people that Jesus died for, and I love that that Jesus died for people like that. Because once again, as I describe these things to you, other than Paul killing people and Peter denying Jesus, a lot of these are like, well, wait. um, Some of this stuff doesn't seem that bad. But that's why Jesus died, because that's still the seeds of evil in us. That's still the thing we need to be redeemed from. And the blood flows down to the cross and it soaks into the soil of our culture and our lives. It's there for all of us. No matter how petty the, the sin seems to us, no matter how petty the betrayal, like I only have a small anger problem. Dude, that is the seeds of evil. Jesus needs to forgive that. I only have a small lust problem. It's a lust problem. I only have a small greed problem. Yep, that's called a greed problem. These are all sins. This is all evil. This is all part of what breaks the world. This is all part of what Jesus had to come to make right. Jesus didn't come to earth because we were cool. He didn't come because we were finally good enough. We finally were able to earn what what we could give to him from, from what we create with our own hands. There was nothing we could give him. Nothing. Everything we offer is soiled 
on our own power. I was watching a documentary this week about the um, prosecution. I believe it was Adolf Eichmann. And a phrase kind of came out of that. Sorry, let me fix this because I am. I'll just turn like this. A phrase came out of that called the banality of evil. When they would interview Eichmann, he didn't seem like a monster. He's just a dude. Very quietly asked their questions. Like, hey, I was just following orders. Like, people didn't know what to do with it. And this phrase, the banality of evil, had to do with, he just seems like an ordinary guy. I think he's the guy who, when he was arrested, was just working in a business somewhere. He was, nobody knew. Nobody knew because he looked so ordinary. But, but the reality is, he, and he was not an ordinary person in some sense, but all of us, even as we look at our own lives right now and we go, uh, it can't be that big of a deal, the reality is we break everything we touch. We're part of the entropy problem. The closest people in our lives, we wound, we hurt, we betray Our words, no matter how carefully we protect them, at some point they will come out in a way where they come out like arrows. And they hit people and they're cruel and they stick. And no matter how we try to carefully uh, be generous, that little seed of greed, it's in us. That's that's just the reality. It's there for all of us. Um, The Bible says the world is groaning as it waits in participation of Jesus. And this groaning is because it's not just the hell of headlines that we see when we think about evil in the world. This is the hell of our chipping away at God's world. I was thinking of an analogy this week. There are some people who, when they sin, it's like they take a backhoe and they just carve this huge gash out of the earth, like, you dug a hole. And people are falling into that, and they're getting hurt. Like, they're just going around. It's monstrous. We talked a couple weeks ago here about an incident here in town several weeks ago where something came to to light with someone who was well-known in church circles, and it just it's the backhoe of sin that just took a chunk out of this community. So Jesus dies for that, right? And meanwhile, I'm over here with my shovel going... Yeah, you stop it. And I'm just digging away a little shovel full at a time, and you give me enough time, I wonder how much damage I can do to God's good world. Might not look the same. Might be a different rate of speed. But we all participate. So here's the bad news. Our hearts are dark. Our minds are poisoned. Our loves and our desires lead us to rot and ruin. But the good news is Jesus can fix it. The bad news is it's going to cost a life to pay for the sinful, destructive wake we leave over the course of our lifetime. But the good news is it doesn't have to be my life and it doesn't have to be your life. The bad news is that God, the law setter and judge, demands justice. But the good news is that God, the law fulfiller and savior, will bear the weight of his own justice. The bad news is that the wages of sin is death. The good news is that Jesus came to save the world and bring life both now and in the world to come. The bad news is I don't deserve this gift of grace and neither do you. 
But the good news is we don't need to deserve or earn it. It's a gift to even the most undeserving. All right, so we're going to do communion today. And here's the way it's going to work. The ushers are going to pass the emblems out to you. So if you are a follower of Christ, feel free to participate with us in communion. They'll give you the bread first, then they'll give you the juice. If you would, just hold it, and then we'll all partake of it together um, when it's time. So communion reminds me of a couple things once again. Number one, the bad news. We broke the world. We deserve to be broken for what we have done. But the good news is that Jesus was broken in our place. His body broken for us. This goes back, if you've been here in church, we've had entire series on the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. But this is borrowing image from the Old Covenant. Something God instituted with Abraham. That somebody needed to be broken to pay for the penalty of what was happening. And Jesus did that for us. The bad news Our blood deserves to be spilled for the many ways in which we have spilled the lifeblood of the people around us and robbed them of life. Maybe not physically, but emotionally, relationally, existentially, spiritually. And the good news is Jesus spilled his blood in our place. The bad news is that imperfect people can never fully atone for their sins. But the good news is that a perfect person like Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, can. He takes a punishment he does not deserve so we can have the righteousness we did not earn. So when Jesus and his disciples were having this last meal together that's recorded in scripture, which is what we're commemorating now, this was part of Passover. So part of what happened during Passover was that they would go back and reference things that happened in Exodus. Exodus 6 in particular There was a series of things they would go through to commemorate what God had done for them. And in one of those, the person leading the meal would hold up the bread and would say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. And in that setting where it was much smaller, there would have been a much more physical symbol of this shared nature. So they would have one big loaf of bread and you tear it off and give everybody a piece. So you're, you're all eating from the same loaf. It's hard to capture that when we do it like this, but it's hard to envision having a big enough loaf to give all of you a piece, right? So they would hold it up and say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. But now the Gospels record the presenter is Jesus, and Jesus breaks the bread, and he says, he gave thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. So it's not this is the bread of our affliction. Now it's this is the bread of my affliction, said Jesus. You don't need to be broken. You don't need to participate in some sense in this old way of understanding how things are going to be made right. This is the bread of my affliction, and I will lead you on a true exodus out of bondage to sin and death. So Jesus changes the narrative in that moment. So now the Passover changes its focus. Now we do this to remember Christ. In Passover, they did it to remember that in Egypt, God passed over the homes of the Egyptians so that nobody had to die. And the blood of the lamb above the doorway was the mark that kept them safe. 
It's just foreshadowing for what Jesus was going to do. And Jesus says, okay, I'm here. I'm here. This thing you've been waiting for, finally. With his body, and then he says, this is my blood. And there he's showing himself as a fulfillment of their longings for a Messiah or a deliverer. So Passover reminded them that God had delivered them from death and slavery in Egypt. And now we're commemorating this new kind of Passover because God has delivered the entire world from sin and death. So that seems like a weird thing maybe to focus on on Easter Sunday because isn't this about resurrection? Yes. Yes, it is. You can't have resurrection without crucifixion. And I want us to understand what crucifixion offers to us. The forgiveness of our sins because of Christ. What does resurrection do? Resurrection shows us Jesus is God and will do what he has said he can do. If you can raise yourself from the dead, you can forgive sins. So on Easter Sunday... We celebrate that Christ has come back to life, and we celebrate that because of his life, we can have life. This is eternal life. This is life more abundant, where we're not bound in the chains of our sins anymore. We're free from that kind of sinful rat race because of Jesus. At Easter Sunday, we celebrate that God has demonstrated his love toward us in the crucifixion, but also demonstrated his power in the resurrection. And now we know that this will stick. The, the old covenant was always temporary kind of fixes. This is the thing. This is the thing. So Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Or as John the Baptist would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as we take this this morning, we commemorate what Jesus' death has done for us, but we also celebrate because we know what he offered to us in that death is real. And we too can live resurrected lives because of this resurrected Jesus. Before I read a closing scripture and then we're going to finish with a couple songs, two quick things. First, pass these toward the end of an aisle and ushers will pick them up and then you don't have to hold them and worrying about getting grape juice on your white shirts. Second thing is this, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not surrendered your life to him, and maybe you don't even know how to do that, um, please don't leave this morning without finding someone who can help walk you through this process. It could be me. It doesn't have to be me. There's lots of followers of Jesus Jesus in here who would be happy to pray with you. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, you, you need him. So I'm not going to give an altar call at the end. We're just going to finish with music and we'll dismiss. 
But, but if God is speaking to you this morning that through the person and work of Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, you know, you know, this is a Savior that you need. Please find someone and pray with them this morning. They'll walk you through this. Philippians 3, 10 to 14. Paul writes, I want to know him inside and out. I want to experience the power of his resurrection. And join in his suffering, shaped by his death, so that I may arrive safely at the resurrection from the dead. I am not there yet, nor have I become perfect. But I'm charging on to gain anything and everything Jesus has in store for me. And nothing will stand in my way, because he has grabbed me and he won't let me go. Brothers and sisters, as I said, I know I haven't arrived. But there's one thing I'm doing. I'm leaving my old life behind. I'm putting everything on the line for this mission. I'm sprinting toward the only goal that counts, to cross the line, to win the prize, and to hear God's call to resurrection life found exclusively in Jesus. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.